You're listening to a news report podcast from thebodypro.com, the HIV resource for healthcare professionals. Welcome. This is Bonnie Goldman, editorial director of thebodypro.com. First-line HIV drug recommendations have changed for the second time this year in the latest update to the Bible of HIV treatment, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Guidelines for the Use of Antiretroviral Agents in HIV-Infected Adults and Adolescents. The revised guidelines, which were released on November 3rd, had many important updates, including a few changes to its list of preferred first-line HIV medications. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Joel Gallant, a member of that panel. He's come to the Body Pro to provide a summary of the update to the guidelines. Dr. Gallant is a widely respected HIV clinician and researcher. He's also a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. Thanks so much, Dr. Gallant, for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure, Bonnie. So can you walk us through the most important updates to the guidelines? Yeah, probably the most important updates had to do with what to start in treatment-naive patients. And there were several major changes. One is that a once-daily ritonavir-boosted darunavir was added as a preferred PI component based on the published results of the Artemis data. And also that once-daily boosted lopinavir was moved from an alternative to a preferred PI component based on the recent Abbott trial comparing once versus twice-daily lopinavir, the exception being pregnant women where there's concern about um, lower lopinavir levels in the third trimester of pregnancy. And then the other big change was that the dual nucleoside combination of abacavir and lamivudine was sort of demoted from a preferred to an alternative nucleoside component because of data from both SMART and DAD suggesting an increased risk of myocardial infarction in patients with a lot of cardiac risk factors and also because of ACTG5202, which suggested that there was a lower efficacy in patients with baseline viral loads above 100,000. So those would be the most important ones, but there were a few other changes that are worth noting. Uh-huh. About the abacavir change, was that the fastest entry and exit of an agent on the preferred guidelines? Yeah, that was uh, pretty amazing. I mean, it, because the guidelines had promoted it to a preferred component just as the data from DAD came out and just as the press release about the 5202 study had come out. All of those sort of happened in the same month or so. And so, um, you know, as soon as those data came out, the guidelines panel had to begin reviewing the data and really kind of became consolidated in Mexico City at the International AIDS Conference when the actual 5202 data were presented. And then we heard about the uh, SMART data recapitulating the data from DAD. So it had a brief presence in the preferred list, but, but that didn't last very long. So can you talk a little bit about why this change was made? There must have been a lot of discussion about removing a Abacavir from preferred. Was it made more because people starting treatment with viral loads above 100,000 failed on a Abacavir-containing regimen in the 5202 study or because of the results from DAD and SMART that found more heart attacks in people taking a Abacavir? It's really a combination of all of those things. I, I guess, you know, the view is that each one of those studies is a, is a little red flag and when you get three red flags like that, it's something you have to take seriously, even if we don't completely understand the results. 5202, this was a, a very large study comparing efavirenz versus boosted atazanavir and the combinations of a, a Bacavir 3TC versus tenofovir FTC. 
and the Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped the study in the group of patients who started out with viral loads above 100,000 because they were significantly more likely to fail on a Bacavir 3TC than Tenofovir FTC. The results were quite significant, and although we haven't seen this in any other studies, we haven't ever had a study this large with this many people who have high baseline viral loads. So, you know, this is obviously concerning. We don't have the final results of this study yet. We don't know what's going to happen in the group below 100,000. But in the past, drugs that have performed less well at high viral loads have generally turned out to be less effective overall. It's too early to say whether that will be true in the case of a Bacavir 3TC. And then there were the DAD and SMART results. These results are more complicated, less clear-cut, because these are not results from a randomized controlled trial, but from observational data. Still, when you have you know two different studies that show a significant increase in risk of heart attack with a drug, you have to pay attention. We don't have a mechanism for this. It's unexpected. We don't uh, understand it. But it seemed pretty clear that especially in patients who started out with risk factors for heart disease, there was an association with a, a higher risk for MI with the back of your use. So taken together, all three of these studies raise concern. They certainly don't mean that a Bacavir 3TC shouldn't be used, and in many patients, this would be the preferred regimen, even though it's not listed as preferred in the guidelines. So, for example, somebody who had some renal insufficiency but did not have cardiac risk factors would be probably much better off on a Bacavir 3TC than on Tenofovir FTC. So it's very important to stress the fact that alternative doesn't mean bad. Uh, you know, this is not being put into the category of, of drugs like D4T where, that you really shouldn't use. It just means that if all else is equal and there's nothing stopping you from using tenofovir FTC, then you would use that. If you have a reason not to t- use tenofovir FTC, then you could certainly use a Bacavir 3TC. Mm-hmm. So I think people think there's a bigger chasm between preferred and alternative than there is. Alternative regimens are perfectly acceptable regimens. They're regimens that where we have a reasonable degree of confidence in their efficacy and safety. They're just not the first things you go for. And I, I guess I look at it like this. If I had a patient sitting in front of me who had absolutely no contraindication to using uh, Truvada, Tenofovir FTC, why would I pick a Bacavir 3TC? I wouldn't. I would use Tenofovir FTC. In contrast, the reverse is not true. If I had a patient who had no contraindications to a Bacavir 3TC or Tenofovir FTC, given what we know now, I would always pick Tenofovir FTC. So if you think that way, and I think it's appropriate to think that way, then it's logical that Tenofovir FTC becomes the preferred regimen. But like I said, in many patients, a Bacavir 3TC is preferred over Tenofovir FTC because of patient characteristics, primarily uh, concerns about uh, kidney function. So it's not at all to say that it's inappropriate or wrong to use a Bacavir 3TC, but I just think that the, the sort of the default nucleoside backbone at this point is tenofovir FTC, and, and you would go to a Bacavir 3TC in people who are not appropriate candidates for tenofovir and who don't have multiple cardiac risk factors. There are certainly people who are not good candidates for either of those two nucleoside backbones, you know, because, in, in fact, many cardiac risk factors are also kidney risk factors and vice versa. And, you know, we don't really have uh, good guidelines on what to do with those people. One option might be to consider 
a regimen that did not include any nucleoside analogs. That's not even on any list. Like that's not a preferred regimen or anything. They're right. They're, it isn't because there's not a lot of data right now. But um, you know, we do have some data about nuke-sparing uh, regimens, and with the appro recent approval of raltegravir, the number of nuke-sparing regimens has increased. So we'll just have to see uh, what happens with the uh, data that's being collected now. So was there a lot of discussion about this change? Was that one of the most debated issues in regarding these new guidelines? Well, I, I can't speak for the panel because, you know, what goes on in the panel is uh, is not for public consumption. I can say that um, there have been plenty of comments coming to the panel during the open comment period about this choice, and uh, certainly people and drug companies who've disagreed with that decision. And most of the disagreement, I think, has come because of this misunderstanding of what the term alternative means. And many people have said, how can you leave us with just one nucleoside option? And the point we're making is we're not leaving people with one nucleoside option. There are several nucleoside options, just one happens to be preferred. So I guess there is a lack of clarity regarding the terminology. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, remember, there is a category in the guidelines of, of regimens not to be used and drugs not to be used, and this is certainly not in that category. You know, and there's even a, I can't remember if it's still there, there used to be a category of sort of alternatives to the alternatives, and trisavir used to be in that. So it, you can do a lot worse than being an alternative regimen. Right, probably you should change the wording to best, better, good, <laughs> fair. We could, it could be like a Starbucks <laughs> thing, you know. Everything's uh, at least big and uh, <laughs> that's right more. now that we have discussed a dramatic omission from the list of preferred antiretrovirals let's discuss an addition it's the spanking new protease inhibitor darunavir it was approved uh recently and the 400 milligram formulation came out based on the 48 week data of from artemis which have been published now showing non-inferiority compared to lopinavir ritonavir and actual superiority when you looked at those with baseline viral loads above 100,000. We've recently uh, heard the 96-week data, which confirmed the 48-week data. Um, those data were presented at ICAC, but those those data were not being considered in this in this version of the guidelines. Hmm. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about the regimen simplification section because it's the only meaty section that was really added? Yeah, um, it's a nice section. It it talks about how you might simplify therapy in a variety of patient populations. You know, based on all of the new data that we have about, you know, newer, simpler regimens and, uh, you know, nowadays most treatment-naive patients really should be on a, a simple once-a-day combination with very few pills. And even treatment-experienced patients with, with drug resistance often can be treated with fairly simple uh, regimens. And so we have a lot of people out there who are on these kind of older regimens that were in vogue in the past but are probably no longer necessary. And this goes through guidelines so, for example, of, of somebody without any drug resistance could be switched over to a once-a-day regimen. Um, you know, single drug switches or, or switches within classes can often make a lot of sense. They also talk about patients who do have uh, suspected drug resistance and what you what considerations you might give for for those patients. But you know, I, I think that the sort of the bottom line from that section is to sort of convince people that you know this idea. Uh, that if it ain't broke, don't fix it, uh, you know, is, is really not the way should we should be practicing. That there's, there's nothing wrong with improving the simplicity or convenience or tolerability of a regimen, even if the original one is working virologically. 
patients who are doing well virologically can still uh, expect to be changing therapy as we get new data about more convenient or better tolerated or less toxic regimens. Mm-hmm. But don't you think that a, a lot of clinicians are reluctant to open that can of worms because then they have, they're managing already too many patients and they don't want to start having all these new side effects and dealing with all these new problems? It may be a little, you know, a little more work in one visit, but ultimately it's, it's often better for the patient. And uh, personally, uh, I would find my practice extremely boring if all I did was just keep people on the same regimens year after year. <laughs> the, the things that are interesting to me are trying to figure out how I can optimize a regimen for a patient. And if all I do is just write a prescription and that's the end of it and never have to rethink my, my decision, uh, I'd get pretty bored. What's interesting about this simplification section is that it finally gives permission to healthcare providers to change people's regimens, even if they are working, for quality of life issues. And I think it also acknowledges that new HIV regimens are much easier to take than our older regimens. Yeah, exactly. It's very discouraging to me when I see somebody who's still on a thymidine analog and getting wor- developing worsening lipoatrophy and comes in you know, with a, a problem that could have been completely prevented had the clinician been willing to, to make a simple switch to a preferred uh, option. You know, there's just really no reason for that, and it's, that's, that's an example of uh, an iatrogenic complication that's uh, completely unnecessary. For somebody who follows all the HIV meeting news, is, is there anything new in the guidelines that they would have not heard from the meeting news? No, probably not. If you're really up to date, you would probably anticipate that these changes would have been made. Uh, there were uh, a few changes that you know might have escaped people's notice uh, because the studies were smaller. For example, um, it's no longer recommended that the combination of uh, unboosted atazanivir, DDI, and FTC or 3TC be used uh, because of concerns in a large ACTG study, um, of course, that, that's probably not a regimen people were using much of anyway. And then uh, there have been three very small studies uh, looking at the combination of nivirapine, tenofovir, and either FTC or 3TC that showed uh, concerning uh, high rates of virologic failure and resistance. So because it, it, that combination has not been listed as one that you shouldn't use yet because those studies were so small, but it's the current a change in guidelines says that they should be used with caution until we have results of an ongoing trial that's um, that's looking at that combination. But I think that most people could have anticipated the changes with respect to uh, darunavir, a once-daily lopinavir, and uh, abacavir 3TC. Although you know there's you know still some controversy, uh, but I, I think the decision to make those three changes was correct. I noticed there were some tweaks in HIV monitoring recommendations, things like resistance testing for people with low viral loads. We've usually said that you should do resistance testing when the viral load is above 1,000. The problem with that is it it requires leaving people on failing regimens for quite a long time before doing the resistance test, and during that time while you're waiting, they may be developing new resistance mutations. So the new guidelines say that you could consider resistance testing if the viral load is 500 to 1,000, and that's because we can often get resistance tests at that level. In fact, the, the monogram assays uh, actually list 500 as their cutoff. You know, there is the risk that you you won't get a result, but uh, at the same time, you may get a result that could be very helpful and that could allow you to intervene before uh, more resistance has had time to occur. Mm-hmm. 
I noticed there was also a note about the enhanced tropism assay. Yeah, the new tropism assay, which is the one you would get if you ordered the tropism assay now from Monogram, has a much higher uh, sensitivity for detecting dual mixed or X4 virus. The sensitivity is now about 99.7%. As a result, you can be much more confident that if the assay comes back showing R5 virus, that that's indeed what the patient has. There was the concern with the earlier assay that um, you could have, be falsely reassured by the result and then the patient could fail a Maraviroc due to, to selection of pre-existing dual, uh, dual mixed virus. Uh, while that could still happen, it's much less likely to happen now. Didn't we just hear some important news from ICHEC about with data about when to start therapy and interesting data about raltagravir? How soon will that uh, information make it into the guidelines? Yeah, it's a good question. It's very important to point out that even though this revision of the guidelines came out after ICHEC, people shouldn't be confused and think that they reflect the data from ICHEC. It takes much longer than that to um, revise guidelines uh, based on, on new data. So these, all these changes uh, reflect data that came out up until Mexico City. And, and of course, the guidelines really w wait for published data rather than just looking at uh, presented data. So the data, you know, the data we heard from ICAC specifically about uh, use of raltegravir in treatment-naive patients will certainly be considered by the guidelines panel, but the, I, I doubt that we'll see any uh, changes until we're, until the panel has had a chance to review the publication that comes out based on that study. And the same will be true for things like the NA Accord observational study, uh, which, you know, could potentially affect the when to start guidelines. But again, we'd have to wait for a publication of those data. Uh -huh. I know I asked you this last time, but don't you think the guidelines have become a little bit more responsive to HIV research, I guess, in the Internet age? For many years, it seemed the guidelines were a little bit behind the savviest um, HIV specialists. Yeah, um, I think they're very responsive. I, I've only been on the panel for a short time, and, and I've been impressed at how quickly they can turn things around. But, um, you know, keep in mind that um, the, the guidelines have worked this way for a long time. They don't just come out, you know, once a year or once every couple of years. They, they're, they're constantly evolving based on, you know, monthly uh, meetings of the panel because they're not coming out in journals or publications. They're coming out on the web. We don't have that publication lag. So you could argue that somebody who's, you know, really keeping up with things might be a step ahead of the guidelines, but not too far ahead. Uh, I think that this is a pretty up-to-date document. I noticed that in the newest guidelines, there's a note that for two weeks after an update to the guidelines, so I guess two weeks after November 3rd, which was the date of the release, the public can submit comments to the panel. Do you get a lot of comments? They don't come to me, of course. They come to the guidelines committee, and but we certainly are told about comments that are, are relevant that we need to consider in, in deciding whether we've made the right decisions or not. And that's always been the case, that, that uh, opportunity for public comment has been uh, been the case for as long as I can remember. And and the comments are, are certainly taken seriously. Uh -huh. Do you think too many health care providers do not refer to the guidelines and use outdated treatment regimens? Do you have any ideas on how these guidelines can be better utilized? Well, boy, we sure try to make it easy. Granted, it's a, it's a big document, but the good thing about uh, any updated treatment guidelines is that um, there's always a summary of the changes, so you don't have to go through the whole document to find out what's been changed. If you want to take a shortcut, you can go directly to the tables, for example, the when to start or what to start with table. Of course, I believe that the document is an incredibly uh, useful summary of treatment and of, of the current data, but for those who are too busy, uh, you know, you can go straight to the tables. 
But I get concerned when you hear that people are still prescribing things like AZT, 3TC, and nelfinivir, which you know has not been preferred now for quite some time. There is clearly an inertia, especially among less experienced clinicians. And uh, you know, I think those are exactly the types of clinicians who need to use guidelines because they're not able to um, keep up with the primary sources of data and really need somebody to help distill this down for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, is it the recommendation that they should consult with a HIV specialist? It's certainly my recommendation. I think that everybody with HIV should have some connection with, a, with an HIV expert. Even if they're being managed by a primary care physician, there should be some sort of consultation at the very least. And now one problem is that the, there simply aren't enough HIV experts out there to provide regular care for everybody with HIV. So we may have to come up with new models of how that might work. I don't think that it's necessary, for example, that everybody with HIV be seen every three months by an HIV expert. But I do think that when primary care clinicians are managing people with HIV, they need to have someone they can go to and preferably someone who's actually met and evaluated the the patient. Thank you so much, Dr. Galan, for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure, Bonnie. This has been a news report from thebodypro.com. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebodypro.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us at news at thebodypro.com.